When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Bringing consistency to supervision, to HR, to the whole organization is one way to monitor and make sure that we're not inadvertently treating people unfairly. Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Hey, welcome to today's show. I'm excited for our guest today because she touches on a particular passion of mine and uh, it's gonna be interesting conversation. I already know having have spoken with her and gotten into her book, but let me introduce you to Rita first. Rita Sever, our guest today, and she's got a special focus on social justice organizations and nonprofits. And for our international listeners, those NGOs, all of the above, right? She encourages a unified approach to leadership, to human resources, and, and what she calls unified, I would call human-centered and, and just uh, approach to human resources and leadership. And the name of her book is Leading for Justice. Uh, Reed is a business consultant committed to advancing social justice causes, curating the advice in, in this book, helping leaders to identify and address challenges in the workplace to help level the playing field, promote equity, and all around lead in the theme of this show without losing your soul. And so Rita, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure to have you with us on Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. Thank you, David. It's an honor to be here and I'm excited to talk to you. Well, I'm excited to talk to you too. And so for for our listeners and just want to acknowledge for our listeners, you're wondering, okay, uh, nonprofit leadership, social justice. I just want to start out of the gate before we get into any of our conversation by saying, Stick with us because the principles that we're going to be talking about today are so applicable. I don't care where you're leading. And I know that because the first 17 years of my career, I led in the nonprofit space. And so much of what Rita said, I was just shouting and holding the book up. Yes, yes, it, it will resonate. It'll be relevant for you. So hang in there. So Rita, I ask every guest on the show, and I got to ask you too, if you could take us back to your earliest or first memory of yourself as a leader? I listened to your sample podcast and heard that question and thought, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, because I was not a leader. I was a follower. I am an introvert and I was pretty shy growing up, so I did not step into leadership positions. I would say my first moment of not being a follower, which is different than being a leader, was when I decided to have a home birth and became a parent. That was when I stopped being a follower. When I became a leader in a role was when I was promoted to a supervisor. And I still didn't feel like a leader. The moment I actually became a leader was when I stepped into the role of being an HR director And I had to tell my boss, the executive director, no, you can't do that. That was the moment I embraced my leadership. 
had to have one of those courageous conversations at that right. point. Exactly. And so for you, that identification of when I really felt like a leader is when I stood up for a value. Exactly. Nice, exactly. Nice. And it wasn't until I was all grown up. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, I, you know, I, those family moments, too, you, when you went back to to becoming a mother and your the way you had gave birth and so on, uh, you know, I, I, absolutely leadership and all of that, too. I mean, there's I don't think there's any parent that isn't a leader and what extent we embrace that and, and how we lead, we have choices there. But boy, that's a, a place of influence for all of us who choose that path. Right. And choosing to do it intentionally is when I, I identified that as becoming uh, my own person, a lead, a leader mm -hmm. in my family and a non-follower, which was a big step. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. And that uh, that eventual moment of that courageous conversation that you had where you stood up for that valuable certainly informs so much of what comes. So the title of your book is Leading for Justice, Supervision, HR and Culture. And I just love that subtitle. Like we got everything in here, supervision, <laughs> HR and culture. But we're talking and your book is written to nonprofit leaders. So we want to be upfront about that. That said, the leadership principles for me in this book are transcendent. And I, I just value so much the fact that you wrote this. And and just again, for listeners, the reason that I'm coming from that perspective is because I led in the nonprofit industry in that world for 17 years. And there are, I, I like to say both sides, for-profit, nonprofit, kind of look over that wall between the two and always think the grass is greener on the other side. And it isn't. I just got to get that out there. It is. It. It's we're dealing with human beings and business constraints and the, the nature and flavor of those things certainly are different. And nonprofits can fall into a leadership trap. And I read I, as I read through your book, uh, I was taken back to so many of my experiences, both inside and consulting with nonprofit organizations and leaders, where you would think that nonprofits having amazing missions, world changing missions, that are so important and are frequently human-centered would have a really positive culture. And so often that's not the case, unfortunately. You, you find uncomfortably toxic cultures sometimes in, in nonprofit organizations. And, and I call it the problem with passion, you know, that, that sense in which leaders say, if you really care about what we're doing here, you will. And then they fill in that sentence with all kinds of unhealthy requests, right? I'm curious as you think about why you wrote this book um, and leadership in general in nonprofit organizations and those kinds of cultures, like what prompted you? That was my experience, but what's your experience? A very similar experience. Working, especially as a consultant, I've worked with lots of different nonprofits throughout the country. And what I started realizing was that they had so much attention and passion for their mission, for making the world a better place, that as you said, they gave short shift to their staff, not intentionally, but the scarcity principle that is alive and well in nonprofits led to overwork, underpay, focus on results, and not always walking the talk, basically. They did not look at themselves critically. They did not look at their process critically. And often we could help move them there to a better place. 
And I wanted to share that thought with anyone who wanted to listen, because I think it is so critical to treat your staff well. And that will help you be successful, whether it's a business at making money or doing meeting your mission. If you Absolutely. treat your people well and have a healthy culture and an equitable culture, you will attract more and better and stronger people and be without, more successful. Without a doubt. And, you know, as you're talking, one of the things that strikes me there is that that, that extent to which leaders can fall into the, the trap of saying, you know, well, this is important. If, if we really care, we will and start to neglect some of the things on the other half of that balance scale, that isn't isolated to nonprofit organizations. You know, you, you as a for-profit, you can have the same, if you really care about what we're doing here, the, the mission, the work that you're doing can be important. Or, you know, I've known leaders that were, were passionate about the opportunities for personal career success and financial success for their team members. And they get, wrapped around that axle. And there's nothing wrong with believing and promoting that, and, and it's important, but it can be a trap. And so Rita today is going to help us with some principles to ensure that you are leading from a place of justice, from equity, from uh, that's human-centered. And so love to, to start to dive into this, uh, Rita. And you get really practical here in a way that I just loved in chapter three, where you're talking about day-to-day -day practices, leadership practices, and so forth. You start out by three questions, why, where, and how. And I just loved this because it's straightforward. We can all wrap our head around it. Can you tell us about the why, where, and how questions and how leaders can use them to, to start us off in the right direction? Absolutely. So the why, where, and how are about what you're doing, why you're doing it, and where you're going. And that, those answers need to be a guiding star. So why you're doing it is what is your mission? What is the purpose that everything in the organization should point to? I like to think that any person at any point in time should be able to draw a line from what they're doing to the mission. And if they can't, why are they doing it? So that's critical. And it needs to be alive, not just a written statement in a book or on a wall, but part of everyday work. The where you're going is the vision, which is similar to the why, but an actual image of what will be better, how you will make the world better, or how you will impact the world. Um, and how, what are the values? Because if you don't have the values, you're going to end up slip sliding around <laughs> the work. The values give you the guide rails to keep you on track. And I love that so much because, you know, in in jargon speak and all the corporate language, everything that mission, vision, values get so tossed around and to where the words get confusing and people have sat through endless sessions and what are we doing and what does this mean? And yeah. And to simply as a leader say, oh, wait a minute, why are we going this direction? Why are we doing this work? Where are we trying to go? What's the the, the vision of that picture of the future that we're trying to achieve? And then the how, and that's where you're talking about values, right? The how we treat each other, the how we interact with our clients or customers. Uh, unpack values for us just a little bit more. You said, you know, if we don't have those in place, everything gets slip slidey away. What are we talking about when we talk about the how, but the values? So it really is about 
does anything go is it the end justifies the means no it we have values of what what matters and how we want to do our work client centered staff supported honest in, integrity all those words we use but if they're again if they're just words they're not going to enliven the work and the values really need to be part of our everyday conversations or at least regular conversations I used to hold staff meetings when I was working internally and ask people to talk to each other, do a breakout session and talk about how have you shown the value of justice, equity in your work this week? How has that impacted your work? And then share stories with each other. That keeps the value alive and it keeps it practical. It's not just a concept or philosophy it's about how we make decisions day to day in any part of the organization oh what a fantastic practical way to keep values alive in the fabric of everything you're doing starting off conversations starting off meetings pulling up for five minutes to say hey how, how do you feel you lived out a particular value and when i was a executive uh for an organization three values excellence justice and love mm -hmm. and so in addition to having the conversations around how you were living it out, we'd also have fun opportunities to, you know, find five people you know, at the beginning of a staff meeting, identify five people in the organization who you've seen demonstrating a particular value and tell them, hey, I saw you living out excellence. Here's how, here's why. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. That's great. So, you know, that's one of those areas that it's easy for us to put the words on the wall or in the handbook or on the screensaver or you know, the Zoom backdrop, whatever it is but to actually live them out, to have the conversations. What does this mean? To do what, read what you just suggested, the reinforcing conversations, finding it in practice. But then we've got the third step of values, and you get to this later in the book, but accountability, right? Because we're all human beings. There are going to be places for the best of our intentions where I as a leader or one of my team members, we don't live up to the values. So when we're talking about having accountability conversations in a a just and equitable way that's human centered you've got an entire chapter on this what uh, accountability chapter eight right and uh it's such an important topic because if we're really going to live out values we're going to have to have those accountability conversations so how do leaders approach those in a way that that comes at them from the foundation of these kinds of values it is really important for leaders to remember that these conversations are information. They're not judgment, they're not criticism. They are information that your staff or your peers or your superiors need to be more successful. You are pointing out something that's either working or not working that they need to pay attention to. So that's the first thing I think is framing it for both the receiver and the giver, that this is information to help someone be successful. And then it really is about being concrete about what happened, how it impacted the work or the team and what needs to be different. It's also important to reinforce that you are united with the person. That sounds a little like I'm trying to be nice. It's not about being nice. It's about brain research that shows us if we think someone is attacking us in any fashion, we're gonna retreat and not hear it. 
So just starting a simple statement of feedback with, I know you're really busy, or I know you're giving your best. You've joined with the person and then moving into what happened, how it impacted the work and what needs to be different. I will just add that since I do work with nonprofits, that being nice is sometimes a detriment. People are so focused on being nice that they don't deliver the message that needs to be delivered. And so I make a distinction between being nice and being kind, because nice is focused on how will the person feel when they leave? Will they still like me? Where kind is, I'm, I don't want to be mean, but I do want to be clear. And ultimately, kind is helping them to be more successful and helping the team to be more successful and helping the results you're trying to achieve, whether those are client focused, social justice focused, or your customer focused, absolutely. You know, as we're moving through this conversation uh, around accountability and, and our, our why, where, and how, and the values, so, so on, uh, in chapter four, you talk about supervision is a team sport. And one of the elements that you pull out there that uh, that I found important and I wanted to highlight for our listeners is that consistency is a tool of equity. And so I want to start with if you could help us understand what you mean by equity, and then let's get into how is consistency a tool that contributes to that? What I mean by equity is a truly level playing field. If we were raised in the United States and really the Western world, we grew up with some dominant practices that are not equal, that are favoring the dominant culture, which generally means white, male. It means me. Right? Yes, <laughs> and me to a lesser extent. And there are unseen, in many cases, barriers for other people that it is harder for them to get promoted, to get hired, to have support they need to be successful, to have doors open like many of the rest of us have. And so bringing consistency to supervision, to HR, to the whole organization is one way to monitor and make sure that we're not inadvertently treating people unfairly, that we don't um, give someone a promotion just because we like them, not because they earned it or they're the best person for the new job. Um, not applying rules inconsistently that then start, that people certainly notice and will just, they'll leave, they won't stand for it. So the consistency is about watching ourselves to make sure we're doing what we mean to do when we say equity and justice. So watching ourselves to make sure that we're doing what we need to do consistently which is a great segue into what honestly is, I think, at least for me, strikes me as one of the most important chapters in the book, which is chapter five. And the title of this chapter is Look in the Mirror. And it's about the self-reflection that leaders do to ensure that we're leading well. And so many opportunities here. And, and uh, you know, as I'm reading through this, and even the time we have, we're not gonna be able to unpack every different element, but. I mean, holy cow, I was thinking of so many different times in my own leadership journey where I'm like, oh, yeah, I did that. Oh, I remember when I learned that. Oh, that was painful. But I had to learn it. And 
the value of those learning opportunities if we'll take advantage of them. So there's so much of that in chapter five, and I, I want to highlight a few of these things. In order to get into that, though, you have 10 questions, which I would highly recommend you, that every leader, I don't care what industry you're working in, um, in that previous chapter, chapter four, lead, uh, supervision is a team sport, uh, Rita asks 10 questions that leaders can ask themselves to help them, uh, to, to help you be as effective as you can. Question number seven is the one I want to highlight because I think it's one of the most overlooked in all of the thousands of leaders I've worked with. Question number seven is, do I recognize the power that's inherent in having a supervisory position? And, and the reason I say this is such an important question is I, I think the answer is no. Uh, I know that it was for me for a long time and in so many of the leaders that I work with. So you ask us that question, do I recognize the power that's inherent in having a supervisory position? Let's talk about that power because then when we get into looking in the mirror, you invite us to own that power. So if you could elaborate on that, let's start there. Sure. It may not feel like you have much power when you're certainly a frontline supervisor and there's three layers above you. And yet to the people you supervise, you have a huge impact on their life, their livelihood, their day-to-day -day feelings. So you can give them a raise or a promotion. You could fire them. That may or may not be true in reality that you could arbitrarily fire someone, but it feels that way. And you could give them an assignment that will help them grow and learn and become both more themselves and more successful. Or you could give it to someone else who may or may not deserve it. You can be grumpy and make them scared. You can make them feel like they don't belong. You can be have, say, microaggressive comments that tell them you are other. So the power of a supervisor is very profound in a real way to the people they supervise. Such an important realization for us to, to really understand. And I know for me, when I encountered that, it was I had an employee, and I was a chief operating officer. I was an executive, and I had an employee two layers down, so a, a skip level employee in the hierarchy of things. And she came into my office. I would put her in the top five of all of my staff, everybody in the organization. Wow. Incredible, incredible team member and all the things that she contributed. And she came in the door and she didn't look right. She was almost shaking. And she said, David, I know you're getting ready to fire me, but yeah. before you do, what on earth? It was one of those times where I became incredibly aware of the degree of power that, like you say, we have it. The other person perceives sometimes more than we may actually have, but that's their reality. And it turns out in her situation, it was her supervisor who was not leading well at all and was using me as a boogeyman kind of thing. But it was a wake up call to recognize that. So as we own that, Rita. What does I that mean? One other thing before you ask the next question. David. Absolutely. I think that's a great story. And I also want to add that a supervisor has power in the positive realm too. I sort of highlighted the way that power can go wrong, but the power to, again, promote, to nurture, to mentor, to recognize, to praise, 
can all be really powerful and important too. So it goes both ways. It's not just negative power. Yes, absolutely. And you were mentioning earlier the power to sponsor, to open the door for an opportunity to say, hey, this is an assignment. Would you be interested in this uh, that might help you learn X, Y, or Z, right? There's so many of those uh, positive and negative powers that you have as a leader that you might not be aware of. So we, we need to become aware first. And that's the question you ask us. Do I recognize all that power that I have as a leader? It's an incredible amount of influence that you have. What does it mean to own it? Right. Owning your power means accepting the responsibility of it. It does not mean owning it in terms of being authoritative. That's the opposite of my approach to supervision and power. But it does mean recognizing that you have power, recognizing that you have responsibilities and using them well. So integrating the awareness into what you do and being thoughtful and intentional with the decisions you make and how you show up every day. And that might be the most valuable three minutes of this podcast this year. Wonderful. Take responsibility for the power that you have. You close this chapter with a section called When a Man Talks, page 94 in the book. And obviously I'm a man, and this is one of those sections that I was reading going, ooh, yeah, I've done that. And I'm I, 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 in full transparency, I am still learning these things. It's you know, part of things I'm not even aware of sometimes. And then somebody will say, hey, why are you, you know, why are you yelling? And I'm like, I'm not, I truly am not, but the perception, right? So talk with us a little bit about when a man talks, what are some of, and, and right now we're particularly centered in the U.S. culture, although it, it can extend to other cultures too. But when a man talks, what are some of the things that we need to be as men reflecting about, to be aware of, and to be considering in our leadership? So it's important for men to be aware of this, and it's also important for women to be aware of this, because we are just as used to the culture of being male-dominated as men are in many circumstances, even in the nonprofit sector, which is predominantly women-led. Some of the ways that this shows up is a man can be talking emphatically and it can be perceived as yelling. And that can set off a relationship that takes a long time to improve after that kind of incident. Men sometimes talk over women in meetings, either one-on-one -on -one meetings or in staff meetings. The worst cases of that are when they're repeating what a woman said um, and claiming it for their own, Not often not intentionally, but they just hear it. It somehow doesn't have the same value until it comes out of a man's mouth. Mm. And so being aware of that, the classic, well, classic in the last few years, mansplaining, when you know a man will explain something to a woman that she is very well aware of in in fact, maybe an expert in. Um, so that's another version of the male voice giving value to the words. I don't have the chapter open in front of me, but there are many ways that the male privilege shows up in the workplace. Literally the loudest voices convincing or winning an argument, not making room for 
other people to talk, whether it's one dominant male or a group of men. And none of this is intentional or rarely is it intentional, but it is commonplace. And it is important, as I said, for both men and women to recognize it and to guard against it, to make room for all the voices in the room, not just for the women's voices that are being spoken over, but most likely people of color for gay people. It's a strong voice in our workplaces. And it, it doesn't mean that's bad, but it needs to include other voices as well. And it doesn't serve the everything you're saying also doesn't serve that man with the loud voice because they're not getting the, the benefit of all the other input and decisions and, and the humility that can come with that. So I'm curious in terms of let's get practical as we become aware of this tendency. And I think we have started to be sensitized to it, like you said, in the last several years. As we become aware of it, what are some of the, you, you said we become aware of it so we can guard against it. What what practical steps or tips would you have for guarding against it? So I think it can really come down to building a practice of taking turns talking. Sometimes the steps are gonna feel very artificial, but then they will become normalized. So I, when I lead meetings, I like to do round robin questions. So everyone has a chance to talk. And that's one practice that can bring every voice to the table. For men, I think it's important to really pay attention to how people are responding. So if you see people leaning back or hopefully you won't see them rolling your, their eyes, but they might, that's a sure sign that you're overstepping something. Or if you hear someone trying to say something, stop or, or at least acknowledge it. Let me finish the sentence and then I'll, I'll stop. So that you again, create space literally and figuratively for other people to speak up and ask the woman you work with, ask the people you work with, how am I showing up? Is there anything I could do better when we're having meetings or in my one-on-one -on -one conversations with you? I want to be aware of my impact. That's a big part of the self-awareness is asking for feedback. So doing those listening tours, uh, we, we call that leadership listening tour of asking those kinds of questions and getting that feedback and not even responding in the moment. But you've got an, a, a particularly important what's the word I'm looking for? Something we need to pay attention to when we're asking those questions, because uh, in the section, uh, where are we here? Chapter five, we're still looking in the mirror. You start this off by talking about the journey of reflection, awareness, and management. And I'm just going to read here because I think it's so important. We can all identify with it. We've all experienced moments when someone says the right words, but we know they don't mean it. It might be when you ask someone, are we okay? And they answer, sure, everything's fine. But their tone and their body language scream that things are not okay. And obviously this happens in supervision and leadership too. An authoritative manager tries to work in partnership mode might say, I'd like to hear what you have to say, which they're the great words, great idea. But if the behavior isn't aligned in terms of how we're responding to what we hear, that body language with which we're asking, all the rest of it. I. I that resonated so strongly because, you know, uh, who is the uh, the environmental 
activist. She said, uh, hypocrisy is the first step to real change. Yeah. <laughs> you know, where you, you start by taking the step, but everything else isn't quite aligned with it. So help coach us through when you're working with leaders who are, okay, I want to be more human centered. I want to be more equitable in my leadership. I really do want to listen. And they're trying to do the listening to her. They're trying, but they haven't got there yet. The, the, their body is not aligned with the words coming out of their mouth. What do we do next? So I think what you suggested is really important. Don't, don't respond. If you're doing a listening tour, simply listen and thank people. If you feel someone is challenging you, thank them and say, I will think about it because that is what they're asking you to do. And it's absolutely human nature to feel defensive when somebody challenges you or points something out. So be aware of that too and make a rule. I'm gonna give myself time before I respond. So first is to hear it, to think about it. Um, that is the art that I describe in that section. Self-reflection is the per first step. Hearing feedback as it comes to trying it on, even if your first reaction is no, I don't do that, sit with it. Are there any examples I can think of when I might have done that? That, and what if I did? What if I did and I didn't know I was doing it? What impact would that have? So self-reflection leads to self-awareness so that then you're a little more aware of how you're showing up. And eventually, if you keep practicing self-reflection, you'll get to self-management where you can, in the moment, auto-self-correct and realize, oh, okay, I hear what you're saying. Um, let me try to phrase that again. Let me try it again. And I guess the other part is being ready to, when you're self-reflecting, then being ready to go back and fix things if they need to be fixed or ask questions, apologize. We're all gonna step up, step into it. And being able to go to someone, especially people you supervise and say, you know, I was really out of line. I raised my voice at you when I was frustrated and I'm still frustrated, but I shouldn't have reacted that way. So let's make a time to talk about it tomorrow when we can really focus on problem solving. So the reflection, the listening leading to self-reflection, leading to self-management, and then to use the words you gave us earlier, taking responsibility for what we realize coming out of that process. Right, exactly. That's the art and the cycle because it's not a one-time thing. You're going to have to keep doing it. If you want to grow and be more effective, absolutely. And the thing I would highlight in that is that that requires being comfortable with discomfort. Absolutely. Because it's not easy to have somebody tell you, hey, I think you're favoring this or I think that you're not you know, really wanting to hear what I have to say. Like, I, no one wants to hear. I don't want to hear that. No. But I need to hear it if I'm going to be as effective a leader as I can. Exactly. And it's not easy to realize that you didn't live up to your own expectations either. That you make a vow to listen and you realize you overreacted again. And so then what do you do with, do with it? That's very uncomfortable also. And that's but where that ambiguity and discomfort is the pathway to growth. For sure. Ambi ambiguity. One more time. Ambiguity. Ambiguity and discomfort is the pathway to growth. Mm. 
ambiguity and discomfort is the pathway to growth. Or and then can be. not necessarily. <laughs> right. If we, but we have to create the space for that. And part of that, it sounds like, requires us to have some grace for ourselves in this process too. Exactly. Absolutely. So Rita, uh, as we we're getting to the the bottom of our time here, but gosh, there's so much more I'd love to draw out here. You've got uh, a chapter about uh, issues of power and privilege, and then another chapter about culture and walking the talk. And some of these these go together, but I, let's call out pen or pencil culture. Let's start there. I love this idea okay. of pen or pencil culture. Right. So that was a fun one to write. It really started when I was doing a crossword puzzle and we didn't have a pencil. I was doing it with my husband. And it just was no fun doing it in pen because we once we wrote it, we were committed and we couldn't change. And so I started thinking about how that shows up at work and the difference between a pen culture or yeah, pen culture where people are expected to do what's right and not change and show up and what I say goes and it's a pretty authoritative kind of culture where it's top down, um, it's written in stone, if you will, or pen in this case where pencil culture is more about, let's try it. Let's see how this works. It's innovative. It focuses on learning and growing and developing instead of just the product, just do it. So it, it is a fun thing to think about how you build each kind of culture and where you start. What do you have is the first step looking at how do people show up and are they afraid if they make a mistake or do they say, hmm, okay, let's try it a different way. And what I love about that is the, so in our research for courageous cultures, one of the things that, that we came across was that we call it the dance between clarity and curiosity. And you talk a lot about the need for clarity. We haven't got into that, but that it, in terms of fairness, in terms of justice, if we're not super clear about what success looks like, we're not being fair to everybody, right? And it's the, the foundation for everything else. But then the curiosity that you're talking about here with the pencil culture of we're asking those questions, we're looking for them, we're, we're not writing it in stone. And the recognition that culture is never set, that the way we're doing business today, serving our clients today, it's not locked in stone. Uh, and that's true for nonprofits and that's true for for-profit businesses because the world is always changing and we live in a the reality of impermanence. Nothing is set in stone. So for us to get locked in doesn't serve ourselves or the, the our teams or the people we're serving. Right, exactly. And that's true, that again, for the internal culture, how we treat each other, we can keep fine-tuning it and say, well, this was a well-intended guidance or agreement, but it's not playing out the way we thought it would. How can we tweak it? Yep, acknowledging it's not serving us anymore. All right, so let's take a look at chapter 10, which is, uh, you know, so many of our clients are engaged in, in different DEI initiatives right now and, and with everything that's happened in the world, thankfully thinking more about these things. But you've got some sections here. Let's talk about white do-gooders, what are you willing to give up? And I could not be complicit. And all of these say primarily for white leaders. And I, I'm highlighting that because I would invite you, if you care about these subjects and you're committed to this work and wrestling with it, Rita gives you some really, in, sh in a few short pages, really great ways of unpacking and looking at this. 
going into strong teams require pushback, being the man in quotes and uh, uh, disrupting sexism. It's a, it's a very powerful chapter. And, and Reed, I'm going to ask you unfairly here to, uh, and I'm going to give it to you, to highlight if you had to pick two or three concepts in terms of being aware of and responding to, in a productive way, issues of power and privilege, what would those be for us? So the first couple are ones we've already talked about, listening and self-awareness. In this case, listening intently if someone says, either directly or indirectly, you're not being fair. You're not walking your talk. They may say those words or they may say, I'm not feeling comfortable. I don't feel like I'm treated well. I'm excluded. Pay attention and believe them because that is important information. Being aware of your own power, again, is critical. And being aware of the baggage you have, both as an individual, because that's going to impact how you show up, and as your whatever your identity is is I focus, as you said, on, um, I have a couple of sections that focus on being a white person and the baggage we carry that may or may not reflect how we intend to show up in the world, but it is how we will be perceived until we show people differently. And other identity factors too. And just um, recognizing that we need to disrupt some of the dominant practices that have been handed down in our organizations to be truly welcoming and inclusive and make a place where everyone can be safe and belong and do their best work. And Rita gives you so many practical ways to do that. So as we are taking this journey, um, the compassion that you have for leaders comes out in chapters 11 and 12, your, your final chapters. And uh, th those are misses and messes and acknowledging all of the steps and pitfalls and how we go about it. Uh, and then it's a marathon, not a sprint, that this takes time. It's a journey, right? And, and we talked about having grace for ourselves and, and so on. I'm curious, uh, the final section in misses and messes, you said getting stuck in guilt. And I see this happen to leaders who are, are well-intentioned, they're trying, really want to create a human-centered workplace, committed to those values of justice and equity and so on. What does getting stuck in guilt look like and how do we avoid that? It shows up when, especially as white people again, but it can happen to anyone who's in a position of power where you realize the impact of your work as a leader on other people and you realize that you have messed up in the past or people who look like you have messed up in the past. And so then you become frozen and you're afraid. You're afraid to discipline someone. You're afraid to hold people accountable. You're afraid to say anything. You're afraid to call people on anything because you start moving into self-doubt. And it just is, it's being in that discomfort and ambiguity we talked about before because you don't know where you're supposed to go, but it's becoming stuck there instead of sitting with it, learning from it, and then figuring out how to move forward, which is what you need to do. You need to recognize your own mistakes, cultural mistakes, organizational mistakes, 
listen to people, and then get help, either a coach if you're feeling stuck or a team at work to say, how can we do this better? So it, there are some things you can do on your own, but as an organization, it's gonna take more than one person to move this forward. But start with something small so that you can feel somewhat safe and then keep taking steps to move forward because being stuck doesn't serve you and it doesn't serve your staff or the people you're trying to help. Love that. Start small, take a step. And as you're talking, one of the, I, I like to frame things in terms of questions that I can ask myself. And the question that is coming up for me as I hear you talking, Rita, is if I really care about my people, genuinely care about my people and the, the team that I'm leading and the work that we're doing and the results we're trying to achieve for our clients, the world, or, or even shareholders, like if I really care about my people and I really care about the work, what would I do? Mm -hmm. And how can I answer that question in today's small action then build from there into the bigger things? That's wonderful. Yeah, that's great. And you don't have to invent the wheel in terms of steps to take. Um, certainly in the realm of equity and justice, there are so many resources now that look for them, ask for help and take that step again. And on that note, I would really encourage you to make Leading for Justice one of those resources because at the end of every section, Rita does a great job of, she has a make it your own where she asks a couple of reflection questions that uh, I found to be very helpful as I was going through this. I know you will too. So Rita, I've got one last question as we wrap up, but before we do that, where do we find you? Where do we find the book? And we'll put all of these in links and, and so on in the show notes too, but Tell us where to where we should be looking. Great. Well, my website is supervisionmatters.com. So you can find me there and my links to social media are there. And my the new book and my first book are available wherever you get books. You can order it. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it on bookshop.com, any of the usual places. So thank you. Absolutely. Highly encourage you to take advantage of Leading for Justice. There are, like I said, there are some chapters here I think you can come back and re highlight, refer to, and ask yourself those questions repeatedly on this journey. So, Rita, the very end of the book, you, you, it's a marathon, not a sprint. You talk about dancing. <laughs> talk about dancing. As right. leaders, why should we be dancing? What are you talking about there? And take us out with some dancing here. Well, I'm, I'm talking on dancing in two levels. One is the dance that you do when you have conversations with people. You respond in the moment, you follow the lead, their lead, you lead yourself. That's always a dance. But more importantly, I'm talking about bringing joy to the work you do as a leader. Because some of this can feel heavy, you can feel guilty, you can feel stuck, you can recognize that you haven't done as well as you should have and recognize it and then come back to the moment and proceed with joy, because that is gonna be both attractive for the people you're leading and it's gonna be much more fun to move forward. So dance your way forward and dance with others and dance into justice together is the image I'm, I'm ending with. <laughs> 
Fantastic. All right. So we are going to dance together. You're going to dance with your team, bring that joy to the work you're doing. And, you know, my final invitation based on everything Rita has said is she has talked about leaders and the work you're doing of making the world better. I don't care what career, I don't care what industry, what it is that you're doing, that's the work you're doing. I believe that from the bottom of my heart. And that's why the leadership principles that Rita has shared with us are so important. So Rita, thank you for the generosity of your wisdom today and uh, all that you've learned and giving us a chance to, to learn and grow along with everyone else that you have touched in the world. Thank you so much, David. This was a real pleasure. I really enjoyed our conversation and appreciate your work in the world also. Yeah, I appreciated it too. All right, so that is our show for today. Listen deeply, reflect, take responsibility and get dancing. And you're on your way to being the leader you'd want your boss to be. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.